Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. This is the only one of the seven sayings of our Lord that is recorded by Matthew or Mark. Both Matthew and Mark record one and only one, and it is this saying of our Lord, the middle saying, the fourth statement. And it is the shift in theology and the shift in focus of all seven of these magnificent statements of our Lord. It is the heaviest. It is, if I can say it, the most incomprehensible. Not that we cannot understand the meaning, but we cannot reach the bottom. It should overwhelm. And if you reach the end of the message or the passage or reflection, Without being overwhelmed, you have not understood the passage. But if something in your soul is in too deep, then you might be on the doorstep of reading with eyes and ears what our Lord has said. Here is theology. That is alive with passion, emotion, heart, and affection. Let's read this story. We'll begin in verse 39 down to verse 49. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, You that destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you were the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocked him with the scribes and elders and said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Then we will believe on him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he did say, I am the son of God. Verse 44, the thieves also which were crucified with him threw the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That would be three o'clock in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that said, this man calls for Elijah. Straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let him be. 
Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. The first three sayings on the cross are focused on men. What was the first one? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I love men. I would have them saved. To the end of my life, I love them, and I pray for them, and it will be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, and again in Acts chapter 4, and throughout the history of the church, in the conversion of sinners, it will be confirmed that my prayer was answered when I prayed that the Father would forgive them. What is the second statement from the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. He is a hard worker. He is consistent and thorough. He will not leave a stone unturned. He will grab sinners at every corner. He'll snatch them from the the minute of their death. He will save them from the doorstep of hell. There's urgency in his evangelism. Like with the woman at the well. When no one would talk to her, but he would. Here is urgency in evangelism. And his absolute unfettered lordship. The third statement. Behold your mother. Woman, look at your son. If I could add one word that might help you to never forget the meaning of that wonderful statement. Woman, look at your new son. Look at your new mother for this blood is the new covenant, and I am the mediator of the new covenant, and I'm bringing in a new country, a new nation, a new surname, a new family, a new temple, a new field. It's new, this church that I am bringing into being with my blood. It was not in the old covenant, Matthew chapter 13. It was hidden from them in the past. Ephesians chapter 3, it was a mystery that could not be understood so much so that in Ephesians 3 verse 10, the angels gather around the church gazing in anticipation to see what's going to happen because from the beginning of the world, I had not seen nor had entered into the heart of man the things that God had prepared for those who loved him. But now in the church, something of those mysteries had been revealed. It's a new mother and a new son for a new family. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another, and you'll remember that is a new commandment given 12 hours before the new mother and the new son. There we have it in the first three statements. Our Lord's love, compassion, concern, interest, His complete remembrance of his people. They are, after all, graven on the palms of his hand, are they not? George Whitfield said about Zacchaeus, if he chose him before the foundation of the world, how could he forget him in the tree? Those kinds of ideas are captured in the first three statements of our Lord Jesus. 
Thinking of others, thinking of the church, thinking of his people, thinking of his sheep, thinking of Tsongas not yet born again who will come to Christ, thinking of Kosas and Afrikaners, thinking of Portuguese and Shonas and Wakalanga, and speaking of the Waswahili, all those ones who would come to Christ. But a shift happens here, and it's recorded in Matthew. Did you notice the itinerary? Look at the text. Look at verse verse number 44. Verse 44, the thieves also which were crucified threw the same in his teeth. How many thieves did it? More than one. How many were crucified with him? More than one. But we know that one of those thieves changed. He had to change right there. Because in Luke, it says, that happened, Father forgive them was first, which means it happened before verse 44. And then the thieves, that has to happen after Matthew 27 verse 44. Because the very next verse tells us the time period. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. I wonder if that supernatural darkness even convinced the first thief Something's dramatic here. What am I doing? The lights have gone off. And my light is being extinguished. Then the thief speaks. And then in the anguish of that darkness, our Lord speaks to his mother and to John. But now it's the ninth hour. Do you see that in verse 46? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. This is the time of his death. He will be removed before five o'clock in the afternoon. He's about to cry out with a loud voice. And the text is going to tell us that he cries out again and gives up the ghost. In verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yields up the ghost. And that's in John chapter 19. He's going to cry twice with a loud voice. Once is right here in verse 46. And then the last time, it is finished. (coughs) So we know this is the middle statement. We can figure out where each of the statements come. And this is at the very end when he has borne the Father's wrath. And this is when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the, third, the second of three prayers. Of seven statements, three of them are spoken directly to God. Two of them are spoken directly to men. And two are spoken as a testimony for all time. One, I thirst. We'll deal with that next month, Lord willing. And there is much more in that statement than maybe you have seen before. But here we have him changing his focus from his compassion on poor sinners to God himself and even himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken who? Notice that he says, my God and me. In the original language, actually, three times in these few words, he refers to himself. My God. My God. Why have the you there? It's actually not written. It's recorded right inside the verb. In the original. But the me is recorded. 
That means three different times our Lord Jesus, in this simple sentence, drew attention to himself. He's going to do it again in the next one when he says, I am thirsty. I thirst. Who? Not other men. It's I who do this. He's going to do it again when he says, it is finished. What? My work of being the mediator. Into your hands I give I give my spirit. Our Lord Jesus is shifting his attention from his wonderful love for sinners. He's bringing it completely to himself and reminding us again that on nearly every statement of Jesus Christ, he proves that he is God. I used to think, if you want to prove Jesus is God to Jehovah's Witness, run to John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Look right there. He was God. It proves it. It's settled. That statement may be to some cold. But these statements on the cross are not cold. How could a man on the cross say, me? Draw your attention to me. Look carefully at me. Think now about me. Think about my work and my activity. Think about the forsaking that's happening to me. Pity me. Remember me. Put all of your attention and your focus on me. If a man does that, he's blaspheming. That's got to be divine. That's got to be someone who deserves worship and love and attention and respect. Of course we see it. And the Lord Jesus says, today you will be with me. He doesn't say to the thief, today you'll see your mother. Today you'll see your father. Today you'll see those ones who went before you. Today you'll see Abraham. But no, I want you to think about seeing me again. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ draws attention to himself in the statement. And it is an attention that he would have each of us to imitate. As I prepared this message, I had a great difficulty because I had multiple sermons from this one statement. And I remembered reading Charles Spurgeon. And I often thought when I read Charles Spurgeon's sermons that... He commonly only says good things. He very rarely says all the things. And I'd like tonight to say two things that will prepare us to take the bread and the, and the juice. They'll follow in order. One is the teaching of the text and the other is the application, but they're both parallel. I'll tell you the first one, and that will be the majority of the time of the message. And then I'll close with the second one, but I won't tell you in advance. See if while we're meditating, the second one doesn't bubble right up to the surface. And then I hope as a very natural application, it will be pulled right from the phrase. Here's the first lesson, the doctrine or the teaching. Christ forsaken by God. Christ is forsaken by the Father. What does that mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Don't think for a moment that he's asking a question as if he doesn't know. He's making a statement. He's saying, in other words, this is a great wonder to be marveled at. This is too much for you. You can't answer this question. And all you who listen and all creation that hear and redounding, echoing through the ages of history and Time period after time period. And every person who reads this. And in the 2,400 languages. That have all or portions of the Bible translated. All of those people need to read those words. And stand back amazed. As Frederick Faber writes. In one of my favorite poems by him. He says. Oh Lord in your presence. Silence best becomes us. But love inflames our hearts. And urges us to speak. I can't speak in front of you. How can I answer this question? But I have to at least say, oh, thank you. That's what he means when he says, why? He's not saying, I need an answer. He's saying, marvel, gaze, look at this that has happened. He's saying, secondly, with this question, he's saying, I am capable of feeling the depths of anguish of being forsaken by God. Our Lord Jesus Christ was able to feel the terrible pain and suffering of being in some way forsaken or rejected by God the Father. And for our discussion this morning, that will give you a hint at my position on the impassibility of Christ, he could feel that pain. He could, it may be said rightly of the Son of God, that he suffered. Though the eternal Jehovah cannot be the subject of such a verb, somehow the Son, as the perfect conjunction of creation and divinity, was able to suffer. He was forsaken by God. I would explain that in three ways. Number one, so our first point is Christ is forsaken by God, but what does that mean? It means three things. Number one, it means imputation. Some time ago, I can't recall what the text was, We dealt with the three imputations. Does anyone recall that word impute? It means to count as if you're taking a sheet of paper and writing down this man owes this money or this man has this credit on his account. That's what impute means. Can anyone remember the three imputations in the Bible? Can anyone give me the first one? Number one, it's in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, or is the old spelling book that taught many Americans to read, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. When Adam sinned, something happened to all of his children. The children not yet born. What happened to the children not yet born? But on their account and on their register was written down the guilt of who? 
their father, so that it was imputed or written down on their account. That's the first of the imputations. Now that I've given you the first, I know that you know the rest. The second is here in the text. It is when the father wrote down on the account of the son sin. In fact, that word is not strong enough because 2 Corinthians 5.21, and if you need a verse for it, this is the clearest verse in the Bible, and you might want to put it right beside Matthew 27.46 so that you'll never forget the conjunction between these two. And if you're ever preaching on Matthew 27.46, it must have somewhere in there 2 Corinthians 5.21. And if you're preaching on 2 Corinthians 5.21, a wonderful illustration and explanation of that is Matthew 27.46. Here's what it says. You can turn there if you want to see the actual words. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, God, made him Christ to be sin for us. That's it. Did you follow that first sentence of 2 Corinthians 5.21? For he made him to be sin for us. Three pronouns there. Who's the first one? For he, that's the father, made him, that's the? The father makes the son to be something. What is the son becoming? Sin. That's so That's so explicit and so overwhelming that anyone who looks at those words has to to step back in horror or disbelief, but it's there. How could it be? The son could be made sin? That's what our Lord is experiencing right here that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For the father made the son to be sin for us. It was counted down to his account. He bore, in some sense, all of our guilt. The one who was too pure to look on evil, Habakkuk 1.13. The one who was in always pure and holy is now made sin. The one that the demons said in Luke chapter 4, I know you who you are. And then what did they call him? The Holy One. Demons, when they call him, don't say the powerful one. They don't say you're the one that loves sinners. They don't say you're our creator. They didn't call him Lord. What did the demons call Jesus but the one entirely separated from sinners? And that's what we learn in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. He was holy, harmless or blameless, undefiled, and totally separate from sinners. Four words that in one way or another mean the same thing. Hebrews 7, verses 25 and 26. Jesus Christ was holy and blameless and undefiled, not even touched by a bit of dirt. And totally separate from sinners. If you've got a category, a grouping of people whom you say, these are sinful people, you can put in everyone's name, including your own, but you can't put in his. He's that different and that distinct from sin. And yet, here he says, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, he was made sin. It was imputed to his account. What was the third imputation? Caleb? The first is Adam's guilt to our account. The second is 
our sin to Christ's account. What is the third imputation? Christ's righteousness to our account. Are you going to say that? Christ's righteousness to our account. These are the three great imputations of Scripture. But here we are on the second one. What does it mean to be forsaken by God? It means imputation. Number two, what does it mean to be forsaken by God? It means substitution. That word substitution is hated by unbelievers and by many who call themselves believers. The substitutionary atonement was one of the doctrines that the liberals attacked in the 19th century when Charles Spurge was kicked out of the denomination that he started or helped to strengthen and build. Charles Spurge was kicked out because men were denying that Christ actually took the place standing between God and men in the place of those men. And that's the doctrine. And we mean that when we say this, Christ died for me. When we say Christ died for me, that little word for is saying substitution. In song we say, Jesus und you put those two little letters in that verb and you've suddenly gotten the idea of substitutionary atonement so you could say two letters in Tsonga are the difference between heaven and hell that E-L in there is all the difference and that's what our Lord is teaching here. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Because sin was imputed to him. Why did you forsake him? Because he was taking the place of sinners in substitution. Christ forsaken by God means imputation. And it means substitution. And it means a third doctrine. It means the wrath of God. That is a hated doctrine, but it is the only teaching that makes sense of the cross. The cross of Jesus makes no sense without the wrath of God. Are you familiar with Isaiah 53.10? You might want to mark that by this verse as well. Isaiah 53 verse 10. But it pleased Jehovah <coughs> to crush him. Who's the subject of the verb crush. Who's doing the crushing? Jehovah. Who is the object of the crushing? This servant of Jehovah. How was Jehovah positioned when he did the crushing? It pleased him. That is the wrath of God. It could only please the Father to crush that which was sinful. There is no crushing in the Father's mind separated from sin. All crushing in Jehovah is related to and bound up with sin. There is no hatred. There is no wrath. There is no anger. There is no crushing. There is no vengeance. There is no frown. There is no displeasure in any way ever in the mind of the eternal God outside of sin. So when he contemplated in the halls of eternity past the doctrine of eternal conscious torment in what we now call hell or the lake of fire, he contemplated it as a response to sin. And when he chose the Lord Jesus 
as the mediator of the new covenant. And when Jesus said in Psalm 40 by prophecy, Lo, I come, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Jesus said, I am pleased to do what you want. And when he said that, that was recording a discussion that happened between the Father and the Son before the worlds began. So even back then, before Satan existed, before Adam ever looked at Eve, before they tasted any fruit, including the forbidden fruit, there was this discussion that is inspired by the Spirit and put in David's mouth, in David's pen in Psalm 40, and then again in Hebrews chapter 10. And that is recording what happened between the Father and the Son when the Father said, Who will I send and who will go for me? And the Son immediately and in perfect unison said, I delight. To do your will, oh my God. And what was he delighted to do but to receive the crushing and the hatred and wrath of God and to drink it down in its entirety. So that I need to say this very carefully, but that on the cross, there was combined with the infinite and eternal and unchanging overflow of the Father's love for the Son, there was combined with it, in some way, something of His holy, infinite, perfect hatred against sin. So that these two, for some time on the cross, those three dark hours were combined. And when I read that this week, and when I pondered those words, I thought, I had before been marveling at the conjunction of God and man in the incarnation, but I have not been placing my awe and wonder at the pinnacle of divine incomprehensibility. The peak of all of God's actions that are at once both infinitely beautiful and eternally incomprehensible is the forsaking of the Father by the Son. And the rest of Scripture uses these words to describe it. Rejection. Forsaking. Crushing. I cannot find in Scripture any time that it says the Father turned his face away. But that seems to be a poetic explanation of what happened. Now, when I said it's incomprehensible, we need to have just a comment on incomprehensibility. Incomprehensible is, according to Cornelius Van Til, not something that cannot in any way be approached by our minds. Incomprehensible means our minds cannot reach all the way around it so that our hands clasp behind it. That's what incomprehensible means. (coughs) Or in Gordon Clark's language, it would be as if there's a mountain of dirt and you've got a wheelbarrow. You can take a wheelbarrow load But that's about it. 
And if you remove a wheelbarrow from a mountain, there's still a mountain left. So that you can truly say, I've got this wheelbarrow, just like Naaman said when he was healed of his leprosy, he said, give me two bags of dirt so I can at least say I've got something from Israel with me. The land of the true God. Let me at least take something away. In the same way, you can understand something of what I'm saying, something of what this means, something of the glories and beauties, something enough so that you can see the color, feel the texture, and say, there's a mountain more of this, and I can't, I can't get it. I can't climb it. It's too steep. It's too heavy for me to pick up. It's too long for me to run. When I look at it, I can't even look at the whole thing. No painter could paint it. No man could summarize it. And friends, that is one of the many tasks which will employ us for all eternity in heaven. You will be climbing that mountain. And you will love every moment because every step you take up the mountain of that divine incomprehensibility, the conjunction of eternal love and eternal hatred, both poured out from the Father to the Son, for those three hours, you will find in that every pleasure because you will discover new, amazing beauties and glories. And it will be like walking through the botanical gardens, but they have no end. And there are always new species, and they're always blooming. This is, this is what it means if I can even say that sentence at God forsaking his son. And so I'll close this first point by telling you that no catastrophe, no pain, no injustice, no hardship, no outrage can compare to this one. I know there are strong men in this room so that if you heard the shrieks and cries of a woman in the street, you would run, not walk, to save her. And if it required your fists to extricate her from an injustice, from a filthy action, you would use that. And I know that there are men in this room that if it required your lives, you would place your lives in harm's way in order to avert that injustice. And that if that happened, you would be talking about it and thinking about it all night and all week. And it would come up again and again for the next years because it would be a catastrophe. The Black Plague in England was a catastrophe. The flood was a catastrophe. The flood of Noah. But there is no catastrophe that surpasses this one. The father turned away from the son. And even further, if you could take all the horror of the unjust abuses against women, and if you could combine with them all of the wicked, unjust, ungrateful actions from cruel and despicable women toward their righteous husbands, and if you could take every case of child abuse and put it in one filthy and growing bag, and if into that you could take all the wars of World War I and World War II, and the Civil War and the Anglo-Boer War, and the Fechani where the Shaka Zulu crushed 
than Debele about 150 years ago. And if you could combine all of those and the flood of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of Israel in AD 70 and the previous destruction of Israel in 725 BC and the destruction of Judah in 586 BC. And if you could combine all of those catastrophes and put them into one and squeeze in some kind of power and dilute it into one bottle so that it was undiluted concentrated disaster it would still not be a drop of the ocean of infinite disaster and catastrophe that happened when somehow the infinite had a rupture within itself when somehow that which was the standard for permanence had a crack how to change, how to falter. Our minds and our words must be guarded, but we must say something to try to approach to this. This is beyond every one of us, but we must look at it. And perhaps one of the reasons that God allows unjust things to happen and Mobutu to steal four billion US dollars from a struggling nation like the Congo and why he would allow dictators to destroy a beautiful country that was the breadbasket of Africa maybe is so that we would look at all of that and say... Now, at least I've got the beginning sign that could somehow point me to the far greater catastrophe when the father turned away from the son. All, in, all horrors combined cannot compare to this one. And I'll go further if I can go further and say, not only is there no injustice as bad as this, not only is there no combined, concentrated injustice that can even come close to this, but you cannot even imagine injustice like this. And so Christ is forsaken by the Father and something of his infinite wrath is turned on his Son. And that is the first point. And I will move to the second point now. Have you figured it out? Christ is forsaken by God the doctrine. Point number two, if it could be called application. Has it ever occurred to you that since the beginning of the world, since Satan fell, there has not been a time when the Son of God was not forsaken. There has not been a time in the created order when the most beautiful, glorious representation of God, as we heard this morning, was not forsaken. He has lived constantly holding everything together, including the prince of darkness. He holds him together right now, allowing him to rebel against him. The second point is that Christ is forsaken by men. Did you see it in the passage? Look at it with me. Look in verse 39. Those who passed by did what to him? They mocked him. And in verse 40, try to count up all the speakers. You who destroyed the temple. Maybe another one in verse 40. If you were the son of God, come down. In verse 41, there's another one. The chief priests mocked him, but not they alone. It's also the scribes and the elders. And those are groups of multiple people in each. 
Verse 42, one person says he saved others, but he can't save himself. Another person says, if he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Another person says in verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. In verse 44, not only these men, but even wicked men. Wicked men who have nothing to live for, who are about to die, whose life is fading fast, and who have only a half cup of energy left. They say, the best thing I can do with my energy is not to husband my strength so that I can breathe a few moments longer. Better I just take all that I've got left and pour it out in scorn and white hot boiling hatred on the one who made me. These people are forsaking him. It goes on the whole way down to verse 49. The rest said, as if anyone had been left out. I want you to know they're all doing this. That's just what was prophesied in John 1 verse 5. The darkness would hate the light. Or and that's what's prophesied in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own and his own thought, ah, not interested in you. What we studied in the last time, Remember? His brothers, James and Jude, they even mocked him. Your brother is the elder brother and he's perfect. They mock a perfect elder brother. Christ is forsaken by men. Let me give you two, two, two sub-points under this application. Is Christ not forsaken by his own Sheep. In Luke chapter 15, the shepherd has a hundred sheep. Who's the shepherd? One of them does what? Forsakes him. And the shepherd says, I will get that one who forsook me. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul says, as a believer, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul's even admitting, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Romans seven fifteen and 18. Paul is openly saying, I have forsaken God too many times. Which is why he says in the progression. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not worthy. I'm the least of the apostles. He says in Ephesians 3 verse 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. So in 1 Corinthians he's what? The least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3 8. He's the least of the Christians. What does he say in 1 Timothy? I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Do you see the progression downward? Did Paul not forsake his Lord? He would say he did. Brothers and sisters, do you not do that as well? Do I not do that? And here I would bring to your attention not the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, or the seventh commandment, no adultery, or the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, or the ninth commandment, 
thou shalt not bear false witness, or the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, I'll come right to the first commandment. And it's by A.W. Tozer in his remarkable book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that I have really been pierced by this thought. If you entertain one thought about God that is unworthy of him, you've broken the first commandment. That's chapter one of his book. And that's the most cutting, piercing law of all ten. How many times have you thought thoughts about God and they have been flippant? How many times have you said his name without respect and reverence and fear? How many times have you prayed and even in your prayer you've said the name of divinity and deity without reverence? How many times have we prayed and offered up as a prayer some petty, trite repetitions of things we've heard a hundred times without any of our heart and soul in it? Are these not the breakings of the first commandment and a forsaking of the darling of heaven? My brothers and sisters, we have great reason to look at our Lord's words here and say, my God, my God, you forsook him, but that was because you despised the sin. But I have forsaken him when he was clothed in righteousness and glory and holiness and beauty and wonder. And he could look at us and say, my son, my son, why have you forsaken me? Have we not forsaken him in our devotion, in our prayer, in our worship? Have we not forsaken him in our affection and in our joy and rejoicing? How many of us can say that we sing in a way that's worthy of one who can read our thoughts? How many of us can say that we praise him in a way, we thank him at mealtimes? My application is this, Christ is still forsaken by men. I said there are two sub-points. The first is that men do this to our dear Lord Jesus, his, his own people ones who've believed on him, ones who've been born again. And as we come to the table, I ask you, have you not forsaken him? Just go to him and say, oh Lord Jesus, you are rich with mercy. You are a fountain of mercy. And if you did not forsake me on the cross, even when you were forsaken by both men and God, I know you will, you will take me today and you'll hear it though it's the thousandth time, though it's the tenth time in an hour, you will still hear me. Christ is forsaken by men. But in conclusion, and with the final application, the second sub-point under the second point, Christ is forsaken by the nations. There is no greater cat catastrophe or calamity now in the world than this. The greatest of all time is when the Father turned his back on the Son but now, there is nothing greater than the fact that you can drive an hour from this place and find people who know nothing of Christ. And when I say nothing, let me give you examples. As I, I give you these examples constantly. If you come to this church, you have heard these and the reason I pour these examples on you is that you would realize it's not one or two or three people. It's anyone you talk to. Today, when I came from the Valdezia Church, I dropped off all the people from Malumbe, 
And on my return, there was a man, a woman, and two babies walking in the rain. So I said, come, get in the vehicle. They got in the vehicle, and I could tell by their face they were Shona. So I said, Mamuka say, oh, they were very happy that I could speak Shona. And I got a few phrases together and said, What did you learn today in church? Ah, they were impressed. They didn't answer me. I asked them again, what did you learn in church? Oh, I asked first, are you coming from church? Yes, we're coming from church. What did you learn today in church? Ha, ha, ha. Then the man says, we learn we must not hit. We must not fight. Anything else? Yeah, we learned that we must not lie. Anything else? What have you forgotten? What did you forget? We don't know. You forgot something very big, and if you forget this, you'll go to the fire. Ah, the man says. What did you forget? I don't know. Oh, oh, tell me you know. You've got to know. The one great thing you must learn at church, the one reason you go to church, I don't know, you have to tell me. I press him and press him. It's Christ. The catastrophe of today is that that is the state of affairs for 18 million Shona speakers. You find a few and it will be a trickling, paltry percentage. It will be the margins. It will not be the body. The body of Shonas think that way about the one who is forsaken by God for them. The body of the Tsongas feel that way. There is no greater catastrophe. Just imagine walking through a village where all the people, if their hearts could be seen, have knives and daggers and swords. They have hatred toward Jesus Christ who hung in agony for them. Who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty of the throne of God. And who says to all his sheep, go, go, into all the world. Don't look for extra money, just go. And he says to his church, you send, or you go, or you disobey. Those are the options. There are none others. There are no greater thoughts that ought to occupy our mind because this commandment actually comes from this statement of our Lord. When Jesus said, my God, why did you forsake me? Springing naturally out of that is, oh, then today, why do men forsake him? God forsook him because he was bearing their sin. Then why do men continue to forsake him? Because their hearts are dark. They are ignorant of the life of God having no hope and without God in the world, and we who have the gospel ought to dedicate every rand, every minute, every hour in some way to changing that which is now the greatest catastrophe in the world. That throughout this world, the great body of men and women really care nothing about the fact that the Son of God was forsaken. I wish there were a way that our hearts and minds could feel this incomprehensible mountain and then transform that into energy that we would go out and say, that was real and true, but it's in the past. And the catastrophe today is that you forsake him. May we today come to the Lord Jesus Christ and know him and love him and not forsake him and do all that we can that other men might not as well. Let's close our eyes.
Father, we pray that you would come to us with power and grace and grant that we would understand the truth of this statement of Jesus on the cross. And may we take the Lord's table with love for him who was love embodied. Amen.